Oh, that's beautiful. Revolutionaries was good. Today's episode is brought to you by the Rogue Media Group, which is a veteran-led integrative marketing agency with affiliated networks that reach nearly 1 million multicultural professionals, business owners, and public policymakers. RMG, as it's affectionately known, was founded in 2013 by my dude, Maximilian Hamilton, and has grown from a single offering to a multifaceted media company that offers everything from media planning and buying to written content development, sponsorship consulting, and conference development, as well as digital marketing, custom video, DEI strategy, personal branding, and speaker sourcing. RMG's signature program, one that I was able to MC last year, is the fifth annual Fuel, the Ultimate Men's Summit. It will take place this year in November, the 9th through the 12th, 2023, in Houston, Texas. The annual summit is a gathering of 500 plus CEOs, professionals, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. Participants will explore and discuss advancing the mobility of black professionals, entrepreneurs, and business leaders. The summit will include a golf outing, panel discussions, keynotes, breakout sessions, and awards recognition, and guess this, a celebration of hip hop's 50th anniversary. To learn more about RMG and Fuel, the Ultimate Men's Summit, visit www.roguemg.com. And now, let's get ready for the show. Mahabla, what's up, man? How are you? You said that this was my revolution, and I think it is. I think part of the incredible value and love and positivity that you put into the world is that you're exposing people to multiple revolutions. Everybody's living their own revolution. Everybody's doing their own thing, trying to chip away, change the way the world works, change the way we see the world, all those things. And we're doing it one way, but other people are doing it in their ways. We open people's eyes to a certain perspective. We open people's eyes to a certain perspective. Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, revolutionaries? Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves, where people can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's good, revolutionaries? I hope all is well. And as you heard me talk about that, I hope that you are winning summer because as we, go, as we get older, time seems to fly by. Days begin and end so fast. And if we're not taking time with community, if we're not taking time to really do the deep work on ourselves, we'll end up realizing that we didn't look, you know, when we look back, that we didn't take the chance to grow, to revolutionize ourselves, as we say here, to revolt and evolve, to find where you can get better in your lives. And the interesting thing, I'm I'm not going to go through my usual diatribe because I want to spend this conversation today talking to like one of my closest friends. And the interesting thing, you can go back and hear the first episode with my good friend, Muhammad Lila, Lila, and you will see who this person is, right? But once you hear this story and once you hear what he's doing in the world now, you're going to be like, how do I actually make more impact in what I'm doing? But I want to pull back for one second and say, 
friend because if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode like i want you to understand that i met him at my beloved camelback and over a conversation we were able to bond and this this friendship has been able to build over the last five five years now uh, uh last five years over basketball over our, over our love for basketball and let me just say this revolution is when you're meeting people and you're meeting luminaries out in the world like muhammad it's not about the ask it's not about what they are in the world it's about who they are in the room at that time and the interesting thing building relationships is not about what you can do for me or what i can do for you it's finding the commonalities that bring us together that's the thing about relationships at any point in time muhammad and i can get on the phone and we can talk about a host of things but the one thing that we can say that galvanized together is that his toronto raptors won their only championship against my <laughs> against my golden state warriors <laughs> so but we were in the room together in new york city putting on work with entrepreneurs but we found time to enjoy each other because the first conversation we had was about basketball and one of the most inflection points of our relationship was being able to celebrate in an airbnb in new york city the toronto raptors first championship so welcome back to the show my dear friend my dear friend who is the ceo of goodable and we're going to talk about this because this is the the most one of the most impactful news organizations in the world we're, we're going to get to that but mohammed what's up man how are you <laughs> i'm i'm flattered and you know the best thing about that night was that they were playing on the west coast so it was like midnight or 1 a.m. <laughs> yeah. or something. And I remember you were tired as Exhausted. hell. And we, we had a we had a long week and it was just like we're watching the game. It was like, no, you know what? Uh, we got to watch this through the end. And I think it came to a point where it was close, but I think it was really leaning towards like, okay, it looks like the Raptors were going to take mm -hmm. this, right? And I know you pushed yourself right to the end. And and I never, I've never told you this, but I think you pushed yourself at the end to watch the end of that game because you knew how important it was to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's be honest, you know, the, the, the Warriors have won before. It's not like they hadn't won a championship, right? Like, you, you'd, we'd, we'd all seen it before. But for Toronto to, to, to win and me being away from my home at the time, being in New mm -hmm. York City, I think there was an aspect of you which was like, no, you know what? I'm going to hang out with mom <laughs> until the end of this. And, and, and we did. And, and it was a memorable night. It was. It was. And I remember both of us sitting, sitting on the couch and Steph missed that, that three to tie. Yeah. That, that, that three to tie. Uh, and we knew that was it. And you were like, yes. And that's, that's the one thing. And, and understanding the true nature of what it means to be, to love your country. You know, to, to, to love your country and, and to see, because you, you think about that, you know, you used to have the Grizzlies, but you don't have the Grizzlies anymore in, in, in Canada, but Toronto, you live in Toronto. It's, it's the country's basketball team. And then even, even on a selfish level, you know, you think about all the ways that you bond with people, right? Mm. So some people bond over food, some yes. people bond over arts or movies or theater or sports or whatever. Um, I would bond with people over basketball, just like how you and I connected, right? And and so you think about all the people that you bond with through the game, and for us, it was mm -hmm. through the Raptors. And then when the Raptors achieve a level of championship success, it's like, you know what? This is going to improve how I bond with people <laughs> because you you bond over the same things. 
and you agonize over the same things and you have the same sort of interests. And suddenly, like when those interests are successful, it's like, wow, I'm going to bond with people on a different level now because we feel like we shared in that experience of like them winning. But none of us were on the court, right? But like you feel like you shared in the experience of your city or your town yes. or, or your country. And, and the next time you see those people, um, it's a different feeling yeah. that you have, right? Because it's like, you're, you're, it's like, wow, you know, that thing that we're really into, it just manifested itself into yes. success. And that, and that was, that, that's a really nice benefit of any sports, right? It's like, I think that's why people cheer for sports, right? It's not because, you know, some people bet on sports and you cheer when they win, but like the, the purists, right? We, we follow sports because it represents, um, it brings us closer to being the best version of ourselves. Right. That's the right way to follow. That's, sports, that's right? the right it way. Bring, to... It should bring you better to being a better person. Mm. And, and that's what I think it does. No, I, I, I love that. I love you saying that because with everything, and, and this is where I'm going to dive into the, our conversation today. Through and through, you're a Canadian and I'm an American. And that's an interesting thing for me to say. I'm an American. It's okay. I won't hold it against you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm a black American. And to simply, to simply say, I, I'm just going to put it out there. To simply say out loud that I'm an American with what goes on in our country. Sometimes is hard. And I, I, I say that. Sometimes it's hard, but I still get chills when I hear the Star Spangled Banner and I'm, I'm at a sporting event. Mm -hmm. I still put my hand over my heart, you know, and sing the Star Spangled Banner, knowing the history of the Star Spangled Banner and its entire, the, the entire verses that come along with it. Yeah. I know the, the, the historical nature of what it meant for my ancestors to come to this country To be brought to this country and then to build this country and to have their Americanism lessen sometimes. Yeah. But, but coming back to what you're saying is that at the recording of this, the, the, the women's national team is playing for the World Cup. And I have been up for every game. I've wanted wow. to be in space with people who don't look like me, who look like me, who enjoy the game, who enjoy soccer. Because in this instant in sports, Muhammad, I feel like this is the truest American feeling that I have. And that is so interesting that you say, because I feel like my, my patriotism, my love for this country is brought out more when I'm seeing, interestingly enough, a very, very diverse women's team playing for our country and hoping, 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 gasping at every kick, every header, everything, hoping for a goal to raise my hands with other people around me to slap their, to slap them high five to show my patriotism. So that, that that's my diatribe in thinking about what you said, that sport can bring out the best in us. And I, I, I love that because I think about myself when I'm rooting for our national teams. And then I look on our national teams and I think about Naomi Gorma 
you know, from California, kind of Cali- who, who parents are Ethiopian, who are immigrants to this country. And seeing her playing well and seeing uh, Sarah Smith or Sophia Smith, you know, playing well and Julie Ernst and all of the different folks and Megan Rapino. I'm elated as an American, not a black American. Yes. But as an American, I'm like, let's go out and win this. So I, I, I'm just that sparked something in me when you said that sport brings out the best in us. Yeah. You know, um, at, at the time of this recording, this is the 31st anniversary of what I consider quite possibly the greatest sporting moment of all time. Mm. It's the 31st anniversary. It's not something people remember off the top of your heads, but when I explain this, your listeners are going to say, oh, I remember when <laughs> that happened. And it was 31 years ago today. Uh, it was at the 1992 Olympics. I think it was Barcelona or Atlanta. It was probably Barcelona. Barcelona, 1992. It's Barcelona. 1992 Summer Olympics. There was somebody competing in the, was it the 400 meters or the 800 meters? His name was Derek Redmond. Okay. And he's not a, he's not a household name. He's not a Carl Lewis. He's not a Usain Bolt. He's not one of these guys, but he, uh, he was one of the top sprinters in the race and race began and he was competing for a top three spot. And out of nowhere, he pulled up and tore his hamstring and he stopped. And you know, when you're sprinting, when you're running through those races, mm-hmm. when it's a non-contact injury, like the moment you slow down, you know, that's serious. That guy popped an ankle. It was an Achilles or MCL or something. So he pulled up and he couldn't even stand. And, you know, normally what they do is they send the medic to you. And he said, he said, no, like I've been training my whole life for this to be on the stage of the Olympics. I'm going to finish this race if I have to hop on one foot. So he tried and he's hobbling along on his one foot and he's trying to make it. And, and, you know, if you've ever broken your ankle, everybody thinks they can hop on one (laughs) foot, but you kind of need, you kind of need the other foot to balance you. And so what he found was like, he couldn't because his other foot, like he just couldn't, couldn't do it. And he was, he, he was, he was a black man, uh, incredibly talented, very smart, uh, sprinters have like zero body fat. So he was chiseled, Chilled. right? He was, he was a physical specimen and he broke down in tears and it was, he, he was crying so much that like, if you actually look in slow motion, you can actually see the tears rolling down wow. his face. It was just, it was, it was bad. And out of nowhere. So we're all watching this live cause it's the Olympics, right? And out of nowhere, this man shows up on the field and puts Derek Redmond's arm around his shoulder and starts hobbling alongside him. And, and I get emotional when I think yeah. about this because uh, it was his father. Yeah, I remember that. I, as and, you're telling the story, I remember, remember that. And, and his father ran from his seat in the stands, like got through security, <laughs> went to his son, put his arm around him, and then started walking. And then there was, a, there was like an official from the Olympics that came up and, and either tried to separate them or offered him help. And, and the footage shows the dad saying in, in no uncertain terms, get the hell out of our way. I'm helping my son finish this race. And he did. And the applause yeah. and the emotion when he crossed that finish line in last place, yeah. disqualified because his father ran onto mm-hmm. the field, it, none of that mattered. And the entire stadium of whatever it was, 40,000, 60,000 mm-hmm. people were on their feet cheering him as he crossed the line. Like that sports... That's masculinity. Yes. Like that's what, yes. that's what it means to be. You know, people talk about toxic masculinity mm. and we could talk about it if you want, but, but I look at that and I'm like, that's a real masculinity, yes. right? That's a father 
doing whatever he can to make sure his son's dream mm. comes true. And, and we know this in life that sometimes you fail and it's deeply painful. Yes. Right. Imagine training your whole life mm. to be on the biggest sporting stage in the world and have it taken away from you because you, you, you ruptured your Achilles or something, something that's completely out of your control. And like, that's enough to destroy a man. That's enough to, to just, you, you'll never be the same. Forget about physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, you'll just never be the same. And so for a father to acknowledge that in his son and come running down and say, Hey son, you don't have to go through these hardships alone. That's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And it shows how sports, like you said, right? Sports, sports can, and, and at its best, bring out the best in us. Yes. And so it's 31 years to that day where that moment. Wow. That is amazing because as you started telling that story, I remembered that. I, I, I remember distinctly it. remembered that. And the beauty of that, the beauty of that and, and of a father and son. And it, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing my best to hold it all together after like internalizing that because I talk so much about my father, right? Um, being, being a lighthouse, being a rudder when I needed him to be a rudder, um, to be the engine, to be the engine of, of, of my life when I needed him to be the engine of my life. All of those different things, the engine, the rudder, the lighthouse, when he said, I'm, I'm going to push you out to sea, but if you ever need to look back, I'm here. And yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, I'm that's just, what fatherhood should be, right? Yes. That's what it should be. Cause, and, and we know this as, as men, and I know this as a father, but it comes to a point where you, you, you've got to let go. Yes. Right. You've got your kids have to be, they have to be their own women. They have to be their own men. And it's painful and it's scary. And it's all of those things. You know, um, any parent who's listening can, can sympathize with this. The moment your child gets a driver's license (laughs) and you hand them those keys and they're, and they're driving on their own. Yes. You know, there, there isn't a day that goes by where the thought doesn't cross your mind as a father that like, what if they don't come home? Mm -hmm. Right. But you've got to do it. You've got to do you've it. You've got to let them go. Yeah. You got to let them go. And, and, and so, you know how you're, um, it's so interesting that I, you use that analogy about a lighthouse because, uh, for many of us, you, I bet me for sure. Um, I knew that no matter how late I came home, there would always be a light on. Always be a light on. Always be a light on. Always be a light. Yeah. And interesting. Let's, let's, let's take that even further. Muhammad. When the light came on when I was younger, I had to go home. Summertime, right. you could be out as long as you want, but once the light came on, you yeah. better find you better find your way home. It's time to eat. I miss those days. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, kids kids nowadays, they're not gonna have those moments, right? They're gonna have their Apple air tags on them and so parents <laughs> know, know where they are at all times. Or you know, it's not the same world. Um and, and I wish that not that it's a regret, but how amazing would it be for every child growing up in America today to experience that world, mm. right? Where you could, you could ride your bike yes. and you could go to the convenience store and leave your bike outside Man. and walk in and get your big gulp or get your, <laughs> your slushy or whatever it is and come out and your bike would still be there, right? Like I remember those days. I remember, you know, after school, if I was looking for my friends and I wasn't sure where they were, I just looked for where their bikes were. Yeah, yeah. To play, right? To play, yeah. And to to 
simply to simply be free, free of distraction. Yeah. To be free of distraction, but to go back to what we're saying, to be free of distraction, but always knew and hopefully, you know, hopefully there was a safe harbor to go home to. Hopefully, hopefully there's a safe harbor to go to home to. Because when you're when you become in your late forties or early fifties, you can you can then reminisce about what the safe harbor felt like. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the interesting thing. Look, we can sit here and reminisce about home and sports and everything. You know, we talked in the green room about you wanting to play baseball. I'm playing pickleball. Softball season is almost uh almost here. You know, my my love of of sport and play. But the interesting thing that I want to, I really want to really spend some time talking about today is that we're all grown up now and <laughs> we're all grown up now and we're doing different things and different impactful things in the world. And sometimes we have to think about what our revolutions are. I'm going to ask you that a little bit later on in the conversation. But I think about, I think about what are people imbibing out in the world today? What are we drinking? What are we listening to? What are we hearing? What are we reading? And the interesting thing about what you're doing is that we both know that I can listen to one side of the aisle. I can listen to the other side of the aisle. And if I'm drinking the Kool-Aid either way, right, I am internalizing things that are going to comport how I behave in the world. I want you to talk about why you feel that what you're doing right now and introduce goodable to my people changes how people can show up in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's such a deep and a profound question, right? I think let's start from the beginning. I think that those of us in America or Canada or, or pretty much most of the Western world right now are living in a crisis. Yes. And everywhere you look, you feel like it's a crisis. You look at American politics, it's a crisis every single day. There's a new crisis. Every single day. In the economy, there's a crisis. In health, there's a crisis. In schools, there's a crisis. And you name it, you know, there's a crisis. I mean, Hollywood has a crisis now. There's a strike and like nobody, like it's just, we're living in all these crises. And when you add it up together, it actually paints a much bigger picture. Mm. And and the bigger picture is, and I think the people, the, the question people need to ask is, do you believe that there is more goodness in the world than bad. It's a fundamental question that I think everybody should Mm. ask themselves. Do you believe that there are more good people in the world or are there more bad people? Is there more collective goodness in the world and goodwill to do good things or is is the majority bad and evil? Meaning by that, I mean 51% or more people (laughs) will want to harm you, will steal from you will rob you, will kill you, will terrorize you, will do all those things? Or are most people generally decent, good, kind-hearted mm-hmm. people that just want to have a good life and would be happy if you had a good life too? I think if you ask somebody and if your listeners ask themselves, the overwhelming majority of people will say, of course there's more goodness in the world than bad. It's just that we see more of the bad things than the good, but I believe that goodness exists. And most people will say that. You'll find some people who are just paranoid or, you know, part of the wrong political family or whatever. And they'll just, <laughs> they, they just have their own opinions about how 
oh, the whole world is corrupt and everybody's against them. And like those people exist. I, I'm not going to deny that they exist. But on a whole, I believe that there's more goodness in the world than bad. And I believe that there's a lot more good yes. in the world than bad. And so then the question becomes, well, if that's true, which most people say it is, why aren't we seeing that? Where's the disconnect, right? That if there's more goodness in the world, why is it that there's a crisis everywhere? And this is the heart of why we built Goodable, mm. right? And and Goodable was chosen for a reason, good and able, because we think everybody is able to do good. And we want to turn good into like a verb, right? The yes. act of doing goodness should be goodable, right? Like, hey, that was goodable. Hey, I'm going to do something goodable today. Let's goodable that. Let's goodable this. <laughs> like, you know, like we, we chose it for a reason and, and it's quite simple. You know, everybody has something that they're good at. Yeah. And I, I don't buy this when people say, no, I'm not good at anything. There's everybody something. has There's something, something that they're that there's something right it could be writing it could be maybe you walk funny maybe you have a good <laughs> posture when you walk right like it could be something small but it's significant and what's what's my contribution to the world well i know how to tell stories mm. i'm a very good storyteller i was born as a storyteller and i know that's that's my secret and and i've done it at the highest levels of of the media world right i was a correspondent for years uh, for ABC News and then for CNN. And I cover the world's most dangerous stories and places. And I've been shot at and held at gunpoint and nominated for Emmys. And um, you'd be hard-pressed to find something I haven't done. And when I started looking at what my strength is, well, my strength is making people care about things that they didn't care about before. Mm. And I used to do this in the news, right? And your your listeners can't see this, but you're you're, you're wagging your finger at me. I don't know why, but um, no, I like, like to, you uh, said, like making people. What you just said is so interesting. Is that making people care about things that they probably wouldn't? And I think that's that's and and and, and ex so exactly that's what the media does, mm. but they do it exclusively for negativity. So, for example, breaking news. Former president indicted on four counts. We're going to tell you the four counts that you didn't know existed yesterday, but we're going to tell them to you. So they make you care about things you didn't know about, but it's exclusively through a lens of crisis or negativity right. or fear think about or that. sensationalism. Yes. And it's like, if you think about that, so I'm not saying those things are not important. Like, I, you know, this isn't a political statement. Everybody needs to know about what's happening in the world, and I get it. But what about those stories where people are just transforming their communities yes. or their homes or their families or their cities or, in some cases, the entire world? The entire world. Right? That's the and, revolution. And they're transforming the, for, for the better. Yes. Right? Shouldn't that, be, shouldn't that be held up on the same level as somebody who shoots up a school or somebody who shoots up a church? Like, those things are important. I get it. Somebody walks into a church and they kill you nine know, people. worshipers or students or nine people, right? I get it. It's, it's incredibly bad and you need to report it. And, and hundreds of families are affected as a result of that, if not thousands, right? Because they lose loved ones and family members all and all that. I totally get it. But what about the person who spends his life savings building a church, right? Makes it the most inclusive church that you can imagine, brings people into a pathway of goodness rescues people from drugs, rescues them from addiction, rescues them from negative cycles in their life and puts them on a better trajectory. How many people has that person impacted? Mm -hmm. It's the same number. It's thousands of families and thousands of people. And if you can do it enough, you can change an entire country. So we cover the shooter, 
but we don't cover the person who built those churches or who funded those churches or who did something in their communities to make the world better because we're like, oh, well, nobody cares about that. Everybody just cares about the shooter. And the premise behind Goodable is, for the listeners that don't know, we're basically um, a platform um, that shares positive stories like this and positive news. And, and what we do is we collect all the good news in the world, we put it into one place, and then we put it on whatever screen you're using. We put it on our app, we put it on YouTube, we put it on screens in elevators and office places and restaurants and all those things. And And the idea is, look, we talked about living in a world of crisis. Well, what happens if you... You know, if, you, if you've ever studied medicine or trauma or even gotten first aid and, you know, you get stabbed, right? Or you, you see this in a lot of movies, right? Let's say it's like a medieval movie and you get shot with an arrow. So we've all seen these scenes where you get shot with an arrow or a bullet. Well, what's the first thing that they do? You try to stop the bleeding, but beyond that, you got to get the bullet out. You got to pull out that arrow or you got to pull out that bullet, the media that we're exposed to today is like a bullet that's lodged inside of us, right? It's like an arrow that's stuck inside of us. And the first thing that you got to do is you got to pull it out. And it's painful as hell when you pull mm, it out. What an but, analogy. But you got to do it. You, you got you to pull out that thing that's damaging you. And so our thing was, well, what if we could not only pull it out, but what if we could replace it mm-hmm. with something that was actually helping you? New skin. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? It's like, what if, what if we could take out that thorn in your side – and replace it with something that gave you hope yeah. and improved your health and improved your mind and like and and was the complete opposite. It's like we like to think that we're everything that CNN and Fox are not. And I say CNN and Fox together because they're each on a separate side of the spectrum, right? Yes. And it's like it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you're on. They're still feeding you negativity. You might you might just agree more with like if you're on the right or the left you might agree more with one perspective, but they're still feeding it through mm-hmm. the lens of and, and prism of negativity. Well, why not? What what would happen? The, the the premise is, what would happen to your mind and to mm-hmm. your emotions and and to your psychology if you just were able to remove that negativity and replace it with something that was positive? It's the same effect as. Um, you know, cutting out alcohol from your life, right? Or for some people, it's like when they go vegan, they love it because they're like, I've never felt healthier. And like, I, I'm not vegan, but we all know people <laughs> in our lives that swear by it. Right, exactly. Right? And they're like, you know, I'm just so much healthier. Or you start working out, right? There's any number of things that you could do to just change your body. And it's like, well, what could you do to change your mind? Well, the first step is just stop eating all this stuff that's toxic for you. Stop feeding your brain with all this stuff that's that's killing you. Just do that. And you'll be on the right track. Right. It would seem, Muhammad, it would, it would seem like it's very simple. But as you're talking and I'm listening and I'm imbibing all of this, I'm thinking about there's a psychology around it. And, 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 and advertisers and news networks and all of these people know the psychology around, like you said, crisis. And it'd be interesting because it's interesting because I think that I'm going to hypothesize. I'm sure there's a tremendous research around it um, that networks and advertisers have done is that if we're in crisis or if we believe that crisis is happening, it's, it must be true that it must be. And, and then, then these things are skewed and crisis is negative. All these, all of these things are happening. It's it particularly is something against me or like the world is going to blow up and what am I going to do? And now the cortisol levels, the stress levels. And though, and I'm thinking like, 
cortisol stress levels, I need to pick a side, right? I need to be in the in-group yeah. on this. And the interesting thing that we talked about in the green room that is so interesting is that what would happen, one, if we took the time to really, really do the diligence, I'll, I'll, I'll keep, you know, the diligence on what what is seeing to say, hmm, is this really a crisis? And I'm going to get to what you're saying. Is, is this actually truly a crisis? Or, you know, does it really does it really impact how I'm living my life and how I interact with my neighbors and how I interact with my community? Does it really? Because the interesting thing for me is that my mother and I have these conversations and she's like, what do you think about this? And I was like, at the end of the day, I, I try to gaze things under three things, the three F's. Well, I can't say the first F, but are you feeding me or finance me? Does it does that, right? <laughs> You're right. I can't say. So if, if it doesn't impact the three, then I'm like, mm, I really don't care. But what, what I do care about, and I think that what Goodable really hits at, is that I want to see good things happening in the world because I don't want to be in stress all the time. I don't want to think about the crisis of the world. I want to think about how can I love my neighbor? How can I, how can I revolutionize my community so my kids, like you said, can feel safe or my imaginary kids because I haven't had them yet. But, you know, <laughs> but how can they feel safe? How can they stand outside of their high school and not worry about someone coming in targeting them or going to school and not worrying about somebody shooting up the school because guess what they didn't imbibe information that told them that there was a crisis in the world and that it was them versus us and that they needed to stop someone because that typically if we see the manifestos of people that have gone in and have the mass killings they've imbibed somebody's information there's a manifesto or an mm. online group or something that they didn't take the time to internalize is this actually true how does this actually make yeah. me feel I'm angry, but why am I angry? So I think yeah, that you know, what you're saying is that Goodable gives <clears throat> us this opportunity to kind of slow down. Yeah, you know, you talked about, um, we talked about crisis earlier on, right? So there's an interesting statistic that I know from my time at CNN. Um, whenever they would have a graphic on the screen that says breaking news. So there's one of the complaints about CNN is that why is everything breaking news? right? Like you turn it on and like, it's changed a little bit mm -hmm. with new management, but in the previous sort of like uh, regime there, everything felt like it was breaking news to the point where they had like reverse breaking news where they would count down to like when breaking news was going to happen, right? <laughs> so four hours to go until this town hall, three hours, we're only half an hour away. And, and so the statistics show that when you put up breaking news on a screen, mm -hmm. A viewer will watch it for three times longer than they normally would. Wow. So let's say somebody was going to watch something for 10 seconds before they flip the channel or swipe their screen. When it says breaking news, they'll watch it for three times as much. Wow. Now, if you look at, if you look at traditional television news, which people are still watching, although the numbers are coming down. If everybody stopped watching Fox and CNN overnight, they would go bankrupt. If they had zero viewers, in their primetime hours between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., they would go bankrupt. Not, I'm, And I'm not saying like if it was just over one day, but if tomorrow people said we're not going to watch CNN and Fox, they would lose all their money because the advertisers wouldn't pay for those time slots because nobody was watching it. So CNN, Fox, MSNBC, insert the name of whatever network you want, they exist to make money. Yes. And in order mm -hmm. to do that, 
they need to get you to keep coming back and watching their show. And so how do they get you to keep coming back? Did you ever have a drug dealer for a friend growing up? <laughs> I, I had a couple. I had a couple. Yes. Yes, I did. And drug, and drug dealers know exactly what they're doing because the first one's always free. And so they, they get you hooked and they know that you're going to keep coming back. And I'm not, I'm not saying that watching CNN or Fox is like a drug for you and me, but for a lot of people, it actually is. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a drug. It's such, a, such a wonderful analogy. It's a drug because it makes you feel good about the world because it reinforces your worldview. Mm. So you watch Fox, you watch Tucker, not, he's not there anymore, but like, you know, Tucker Carlson, when he was on Fox, he gave you a version of the world that if you were right wing, you loved it. Loved it. And Ate you it up. felt like you, it made you feel good. You're like, you know what? He, we've got a champion. He's on our side. He's sticking it to the libs. He's sticking it to all these people and he's right. And I'm so glad that I've got somebody saying what's right on television in front of the world. And you felt good and it made you keep coming back every single every day. Night. Now, now in principle, I think television should make people feel good. It shouldn't make people feel bad. It should make people feel good. But here's the problem. The media is doing it at the expense of half of the rest of the population. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to make half of America feel great. And the other half is going to be demonized and villainized and, and made to look like they're the worst people in the world and they're thieves and they're crooks and like all that stuff. And, and so the danger is the world that we live in now is because they need to get people to keep watching how do you do that? Well, you can't get 100% of the people to watch. Could you get 50? Yeah, probably. How do you get those 50? Well, you cater to their interests. Yeah. And you cater to the worldview that they have and you give them what they want. Business 101, give people what they're willing to pay yeah. for and what they want. You find your customers. So they started giving yep, people exactly. what they want. Exactly. And, and America was, America was kind of divided, right? And so they gave half of America what they wanted and the other half they didn't care about. Fox didn't care about Demi Democrats viewers or listeners or whatever. They just didn't care about liberals because they knew their bread and butter and their money came from conservatives. Right. And and that's the media world that we live in today. And the the consequences of this are way worse than people think it is. Way worse. The consequences of this is is that people now pick up weapons and they go into churches and movie theaters and schools and shopping malls and they shoot people up because of what they were watching on the news. And that's horrible. Like, you know, I, I'm the executive of my company, but like if I was an executive of CNN or Fox, I couldn't sleep at night. How, how do you sleep at night when you're watching trial of a video who shot up a bunch of, of a kid who shot up a bunch of people and he said, oh, I heard on Fox News that those guys were pedophiles. So I decided to go and shoot them all. Like, how do you live at night knowing that you put that wrong information on the, on the airwaves? Like, what a, what a horrible legacy to leave behind. That, that what you did caused somebody to kill somebody else. I would rather what I do causes somebody to save someone else's life. There you go. How's that for a the, legacy? How is that? How is that? And think about that. You know, what is so intriguing and what I love is that you, you've broken this down to the, the most parsimonious, one of my favorite word, most parsimonious things is that you have to be smart enough to understand that this is an economics game. News has become economical. Yeah. And yep, that is, totally. it is about the dollars. You think it's a product. You, it, it's, how can it's I make as much like money in the advertise And, and the, the advertisers are a part of this, that they are a part of this, that where the people go, 
I know that they'll spend more. It doesn't matter, you know, and my beliefs are not, regardless of what you believe, if I, I hypothesize that if I can make a dollar from this, I'm going to do it. Like you said, the, the prime time hours, whether you're MSNBC or CNN or, or, or Fox, six to nine, you think about your top shows are there. And regardless of what you're watching, it's a crisis. It's a crisis. It's fuel. It's vitriol. It's all of these different things. So my question to you, CEO of Goodable, good news all the time, is how do we pull viewers away from the negativity, I'll say this in its simplest form, and move them to you to say, you know what? There's something else. How, how do you pull, how do you pull them away? How do you attract people? Are these just the smartest people in America that say, you know what, I want to go and, and find something different? What, what, what's the lure? So I think it's on, I think it's on us. I think it's on me as a CEO of Goodable and anybody else out there that's trying to make a difference. It's on us. You can't blame people for doing what they've been conditioned to do, mm. right? If you were raised and the New York Times came to your doorstep every morning and you read that newspaper every day and now as an adult, 50 or 60 years old, you're reading it online. I don't blame those people. That's just what they're conditioned to do. And like there's, it's not right to blame people for what they've been conditioned to. But I think that, I think that, First of all, we know that people are tuning out in record numbers. So um, Reuters, which is a massive worldwide news agency, um, puts out a, uh, one of the most comprehensive studies every year. It's an annual study on news consumption habits. Mm -hmm. And their annual report came out, I think it was last month or the month before, but it was, it was pretty recent. And what they found was that around 40% of people say that they no longer tune into the news on a regular mm -hmm. basis. Yeah. They might they might catch it occasionally or whatever, but like it's it's not a it's not a regular routine for them where they would watch or consume news. And so the follow-up question to them was, well, why? Like why have you stopped? And the number one reason was because it puts me in a bad mood. Yeah. That's what people said. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's an acknowledgement now, um, hopefully in a positive way, that people are starting to understand the effects of what we see. Just like we're starting to understand the effects of what we eat. So, for example, um, 40 years ago, we probably didn't need a Whole Foods because foods were probably a lot more healthier mm -hmm. than they are now. Wow. So, wow. Hold it, like if from a, from a business perspective, there wasn't really a market demand for right. Whole Foods. Or if there was, it wouldn't be a national chain. It would be like small little corner mom and pop mm -hmm. shops mm -hmm. with like fresh fruits and vegetables and stuff. But Times changed, more sugar and you know processed foods and all this stuff started entering our diets, and now there's a demand for Whole Foods. And if you go to a Whole Foods, it's really interesting. We all know people in our lives <laughs> who, you know, uh, they will only buy food from Whole Foods or mm -hmm. organic. They probably work out six days a week. They'll only buy clothes from Lululemon or like some yoga company, right? And it's like they have invested mm. in their physical health. Right. Right. They've taken that step to say, you know what? I will only allow food to enter my body if it's good for mm -hmm. me. 
And, and like, great. That's amazing, right? If you have that discipline and you can hold yourself accountable to say, I'm going to cut out smoking or drugs or drinking or whatever it is, and I'm just going to be very mindful of what I'm putting into my body. Well, what about what you're putting into your mind? Right. Right? And so I think Mm -hmm. there's, I think more and more people are realizing that you got to control what goes into your mind. Yes. Yes. It's, it's actually, it's arguably more important than what goes into your body because, you know, you could mess up your liver or your kidneys and they'll heal. If you mess up your mind, it's a lot harder, a lot more complicated to heal from that, right? Not too (laughs) many people go to the extreme right or the extreme left and come back from it. You don't go to the extreme right and live like, you know, as a white supremacist group for 10 years. And then, you know, in year year 11, you're like, all right, see you later. Mm. I had my fun. I'm going to go and like, you know, run for Congress. It doesn't Mm -hmm. happen. It's passed down. Right? But- it, it's passed down. It's, it's passed generational down. And, and the hatred is generational. Your body will heal. So if you were a heavy drinker for 10 years and you, you quit cold turkey, eventually it'll be hard, but your body will heal. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a shift right now where people are starting to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to tune out to all this stuff because it's nonsense. It's, it's, it's harmful to me. I don't need it 24 hours a day. Yeah. And I'm healthier and happier without it. And so I think that, you know, it's like for us on, from a business perspective, it's like, how do we find those people? Yeah. I'm so tempted actually to just stand outside of Whole Foods one day <laughs> with like flyers for Goodable or like little business cards with like a discount to Goodable on it and just hand them out and see what happens. I bet you we'd get a great response. I'm sure that you would. If you're willing to spend on your health, then I think you're willing to spend on your mind. Yeah. That's that's your tagline. <laughs> that's your tagline right there, right? If you're willing to spend on your health, you're willing to spend on your mind. And I think about that because I, I want to imbibe the greatest things in the world. And one of the things, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving a shout out to I'm giving a shout out to an app that I just purchased. It's called the Freedom App. Um, and what I realized is that my anxiety late at night and that my anxiety early in the morning was because I got up in, I'd got caught up in the scrolling cycle. I was scrolling on yahoo.com. I was scrolling on Instagram.com or Instagram. I was sc- scrolling on Facebook and, you know, on Facebook and, and Instagram, every, everybody's a star. Everybody looks great. Everybody's a millionaire. All the, all, all the different things. Wait, you mean, you mean they're not like that in real life? They're not like that in real life, right? And even, even the algorithms now, even they're showing you people that you don't follow, but suggested for you. And so the algorithms are showing you things that you may not want to see. Like you said, you know, their algorithms are trying to, try to get you interested in things that you may not be want, interested into, but all of a sudden, so I realized I was like, at certain points of the day, I need to shut that out because it's not good for me. And so this yeah. freedom app allows me to now go in and turn off different parts of my phone, different parts of my computer, different parts of the internet. Or if I want to turn off the entire internet, I can do that. Wow. And what I realized, so it's great. It was the, look, it's the best hundred dollars I've ever spent. It's a hundred dollars for a lifetime. Oh, you can pay $3 a month, hundred dollars for a lifetime. I was like, you know what? This is something that I'm going to need in my life for the rest, for the rest of my life. Because if I'm going to be productive and I'm going to lessen my level of anxiety, because I was like, I could never live up to everything that I'm imbibing here on Instagram and Facebook and all of the different things, right? You know, uh, Facebook is always showing me families and kids and all the different things. And I'm like, well, shit, I don't have family and I'm kids. Like what's wrong yeah. with me? Or I, like, like I'm not a 10 times millionaire and all that. I'm doing well. But I was like, you know what? I needed to shut those things out because it, I was and taking responsibility. 
I was allowing those things to infect, infect how I saw myself, how I believed in myself. And so we have to take, as you said, I have to pay attention to what I'm putting into my body and I have to pay attention to what I'm putting into my mind. And so it's so you describe that. I I, I want to make sure your listeners caught that because it's so important. You said, I don't like how I, I didn't want it to affect. And then you stopped and you said, in fact, yes. And, and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's an infection and it spreads. And how do you get rid of an infection? Well, either, you, either it takes its course and it leaves your body, which is really hard, or you take some meds yes. or the smart ones of us figure out a way to not be infected in the first place. There's all these different options, right? But it's, you are, I think, representative of a lot of people out there. And your listeners know this about yeah. you, right? Because they listen to you on an ongoing basis. And it's like living a good life is part and parcel of who you are. Yeah. Right? It's it's not something that you do. It's just, it's part of you. When people meet you in person, they will say, you know, I met Dr. Charles Corpru and we had a blast. And he helped me out with this or he gave me some good feedback or he gave me some advice or he just smiled at me and listened to me. It's like, you don't do that. That's just who you are. Mm, thank it's you. natural. You, ex- you exude that, right? And I think there are a lot of people out there that are working to get to that point, right? Yeah. Where, it's just, where it's just like, look, how do I get to a point where I'm living a – This everybody wants this. Every single person in the world just wants to live a good life. Like, don't bother me. Let me be healthy and peaceful. Don't steal my stuff and let me live a good life. And – Maybe if I can put some good into the world, that's great too. But most people just want to live a good life. And it's like, how do you live a good life if you're being surrounded by these algorithms on Instagram that are telling you you're not good enough? Yes, 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 yes. Revolution, as you know, I'm I'm listening to you in my ear. Like, (laughs) you want me to mention Joyce Chen and, and the episode, how do you find or how do you build your most exquisite life? Joyce Chen is the former head of production at Meta who pulled out, pulled out of Meta and said, you know, you know, pulled out of Meta was like, I want to build a different life. I want to, I want to build something much, much different. And now she's coaching some of the most elite professionals around what it means to be a conscious leader. Like she, she pulled out of the stress and said, you know, you know, we get into the workforce and there's, there's this level of urgency to ascend, I need to move to the next level. I need to have this title. I need to make this much money. I need to have this house. I need to be associated with these people. But what happens if my life, my most exquisite life is something different and that I don't need all the titles. I don't need all the money, but I need good community. I want to surround myself with good people. I want to have an impactful life. I want to help people grow. It goes back to this, right? If you think about what you put in your body, you also have to think about what you put in your mind. And she is interesting. And I love and knows I've talked about her so much at length on this show. Like your most exquisite life could be something totally different. But you may not see your most exquisite life on Instagram or Facebook. Your most exquisite life is something that you have to determine what it looks like and then progressively move towards what it can look like. And I think that Goodable can allow us to do that. I'm going to ask this because, you know, time with you always flies. What's some of the greatest stories that you have been able to illuminate to your followers that that have come on Goodable, that make you smile and say, I really want to put this out there. Or, you know, we were able to catch this and, you know, all of a sudden it's like, wow, 
this is something really, really good that people need to see. You know, it was it was the first story that I ever did, mm. and it was when Goodable was still an idea. And so, uh, you know, you, you you mentioned this a couple of times. I'm Canadian, based in Toronto, and Canada is a big place. And there's a city that we have in Canada called Vancouver, which everybody knows it's on the West Coast. And I remember I woke up one morning and I saw a headline about a young girl. I think she was 16 or 17, and she was um, uh, attacked while riding the subway, mm-hmm. right? While riding like the train and she was on her way to school or something. And uh, I remember I read the headline and the headline played to the fear and anxiety, right? Because, oh, you know, young woman attacked on the subway. Everybody's immediate thought is, oh, that could have been me. Yeah. Right. I ride that subway. And so the way they frame it is designed to get as much sort of generate as much anger or shock as they can. And it was interesting because I read the story and it talked about how she was assaulted and then it talked about how police uh, arrested the man at the next subway station. So at the next stop, uh, police were waiting and they arrested him. And if you read sort of the fine print, um, the entire subway car or train was filled with people because it was rush hour. Mm-hmm. And only one person on that train intervened. So they saw what was happening. There was a uh, the girl was uh, Muslim, Arab, I think, and she was wearing the hijab, the mm. head covering, which makes her kind of a visible target for people who have a lot of hatred. And so this 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 man who did the assaulting was just yelling at her, swearing at her, saying, I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to do that to you. Clearly, he was just berating her, and nobody on the train stood up to do anything. So the article talked about that. It focused on how she, it was a busy train, and she was being assaulted. And then if you read it, it was like, you know, well, how did the man get arrested? Well, there was one person on the train who came to her help. Mm. And there was one person on the train who uh, you had to really read the details. Like I had to dig to find the details. But, you know, he actually wrestled the man to the ground, held him there, held him for police, gave police witness statement, walked the, the girl home. Wow. Like offered to call paramedics wow. and stuff. Like he just really went out of his way. And so the interesting thing was the victim in this case was a young Muslim woman wearing hijab. And the guy that saved her was a white Canadian dude from a small town outside of Vancouver. Mm. Like a town that like, that, that I'm not going to mention the town, but if you talk <laughs> to people from Vancouver, you know, it doesn't have the nicest reputation, right? It's like a small town, right? Beautiful place, but it doesn't have a great reputation. And so every other organization reported on the fact that a woman was assaulted. We said, well, hey, wait a minute. Why don't we celebrate this one person yes. who actually risked yes. his life to save yes. a stranger? To us, that's the story. Yes. Right? Story is complete stranger risks his life to take down an armed man who was assaulting a woman. Like, we've talked about this in the green room, right? You want to talk about toxic masculinity. Yeah. That's the opposite of toxic masculinity, right? Is, is, is taking charge and risking everything that you have for a better cause and, and, and mm, saving anyone's life. I love that. So, so I remember this because we treated it as a test case, right? We, we took a very academic approach and we're like, okay, the media reported it this way. What if we report it and our lead is, his name was Jake. So we said, meet Jake the 20-year-old kid who saved a young girl from being assaulted and probably much worse. And it went viral instantly. Wow. Instantly. And and then all these people around started replying and saying, what a great thing that Jake did. So they started saying, thank you, Jake. That could have been my daughter. Thank you, Jake. That mm. could have been my sister, whatever it was. And then so we and then somebody said, you know, 
I wish I was there because I'd buy Jake a drink. Right. Which is an, a common reaction that a lot that's, of people. That's what Canadians do. Right. But, but I think there's just like, you know, I buy him a coffee. I yeah. buy him a drink. You know, I, I, I do something nice for him. Right. So we sat back and we said, well, wait a minute. I mean, the internet's a thing. People can spend money on the internet. What if we all just got together and bought him the equivalent of a coffee or a drink? What would happen? And so we kind of threw it out there as a test and we said, Hey, anybody want to like help us to say thank you to Jake in a more meaningful way? And within, I want to say 24 hours, it might have been a little bit longer than that, but within a very short period of time, people from around the world were ready to give Jake thousands of dollars. Wow. To a dude that they'd never met for something that had no personal impact on them. I mean, they weren't mm. in Vancouver. Like, I had a, I had a, we've had people from like other countries say, Hey, I want to, I want to pitch in. If I was there, I'd buy Jake a coffee, but I'm not there. So can I give him 10 bucks? And, so we surprised him. So we did this whole thing. We did this whole thing where, where we raised all this money and I wanted it to go to Jake and he didn't know. And, um, Jake had been from the sounds of it. He had actually been like estranged from his mother for some time. He had a, he had a tough life. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie. He had a tough life, but despite having a tough life, he did the right thing. And so we, we collected some money and then we said, hey, if anybody wants to like send a message to Jake, let us know because we're going to compile all the messages and we'll put them wow. in a little booklet or something and we'll give it to him. And the first um, – so we, we got, those, we got those, uh, those messages. We put it into a book. We got the money. I flew out to Vancouver. Um, and as, as it happened, um, I had a connection at the Vancouver Canucks, which is Vancouver's mm. hockey team. Wow. Okay. And, this story and is I amazing. Said, hey, and, and I said, hey, um, I'm sure you must have seen the story about the girl that was assaulted, but did you know that there was this guy named Jake and he helped her? Would you guys be interested in like surprising him with us? And so I thought they were just going to give us like tickets or something, right? Like sports teams will do this sometimes. Yeah. And so the, the GM of the Vancouver Canucks emails me back. His name is Trevor Linden. He's one of the NHL. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that name. And so, so like he emails me back and he goes, Muhammad, we, we saw the story. We'd like to help however we can. You let us know what we can do. And so I said, well, why don't you, like, do you guys just have like tickets that you give people, like free tickets? And so Trevor said something like, just leave it to me. We'll do something better. And so what they had arranged was they did it through us and we didn't tell Jake. We told Jake, hey, on a Saturday night at 6 p.m., can you meet us in this location? Or it was in the afternoon. I said, can you meet us at this location? Because I just want to talk to you. And we had cameras rolling and he came out and uh, we gave him the book of uh, messages from around the world. And he opens it up and the first letter in that book is from his mom. Oh, wow. And he'd, he'd, he'd been estranged from his mother for oh, some wow. time. And, and his mother saw the campaign. Wow. And, and all she wrote in her note was, Jake, I just want you to know how proud I am. Of wow. And... And you, your listeners can't see this, but I'm crying. And I, I uh, mean, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm welling up myself. Yeah. And so he, he looks at this and he, as he's going through the book, on the last page of the book are tickets for him and his buddies to go to the Vancouver Canucks game that night. And there's a thing about the NHL in Canada, like in big cities, it's really expensive to go to yes, these games. Yes, and he could never yes. have afforded it. I went to see and, the... Um, um, 
was the Maple Leafs? Is it the Maple Leafs? The Montreal? Maple Leafs, yeah. I mean, even even in living in Toronto, you can't afford. Most people can't afford to go to those games, and so he's got tickets for three and him and his buddies. It's a Saturday night, which is the equivalent of our Monday night football. Yes, it's it's a it's a premier game. Um, they're rolling out the red carpet for him, and he goes to sit down in his chair, and it's three of his buddies next to him. And guess who the Canucks had in, had invited to sit right next to him? The girl that he'd saved. Oh man, this story is amazing. And so he didn't know that, and it was the first time that they'd seen each other, and since the police statements or whatever. Wow. And so, and then, and then, at the in the middle of the first period, um, the lights turn off in the in the arena, and a spotlight goes on the two of them. And the announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, please join us in welcoming Jake. I forget his last name, Jake. And then the girl's name, um, Jake risked his life to save a young girl on the subway. And he epitomizes everything that we want our players and our fans to be. Please join us in saying thank you. And the wow. entire place gave him a standing ovation. Wow. And wow. wow. And, 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 and then, and then Trevor wanted to meet them. Right. So like at the end of the first period, they send like one of the staff down and they said, you're being invited up to the GM's box. And so like, they're going up, they're meeting this NHL legend. And it's like, this was a kid who had a tough upbringing, uh, wasn't a perfect kid. You know, I'm sure he had blemishes on his yeah. record or his, what he'd done in his life, but he made one decision to do the right thing. And the community, meaning Vancouver, the Canucks, and just people around the world responded with so much goodness in response. And it was the first story we'd ever done. It was the first sort of project that we'd ever done what to prove that there's more goodness in the world than bad. Mm. And and it just it, it it worked out so nicely. And and so we raised all this money for Jake and he refused to accept it. Really? And so what he did was he said, Yeah, and I knew he needed the money. I knew he was having trouble making rent and all this stuff, but he refused to accept it. And what he said was, look, I play rugby and I'm part of this like rugby team in, in Vancouver. So why don't you give the money to our rugby team so we can buy new uniforms and equipment and wow. whatever. And so we gave the money to the rugby team. And so look at what happened, right? One person decided to do something good. This kid, Jake, one person on the spur of the moment decided to do something good. Dozens of people, no, sorry, millions of people around the world found out about it. Some of them said, we want to do something good in return for Jake. His mother said, I want to do something in return for my son. Um, the Canucks said they want to do something good. They gave him this life-changing experience. And as a result of this, people who are playing rugby to this day in Vancouver have equipment that they would never would have had wow. if it wasn't for the one good thing that he did. So this to me is a great example of like how some, you know, we talk about I'm talking way too long and your viewers are probably like, why is this? No, this, no, no, no. Power, look, look, look. What did you say your skill, what was your zone of genius? What was your yeah, superpower? Storytelling. Right? storytelling. storytelling. I am right? captivated but, right now. So, and, and, and now, now think of this, right? That like we talk about how one act of goodness can change the world. We know one act of evil can change the world. Right. You, you pull the trigger at the wrong time. You press the wrong button. You say the wrong thing and you can change the world. But the opposite is also true that one act of goodness can actually change the world. Now, what happened with Jake, not a single person would have known about it. But it was an act of goodness that changed somebody's life. And what happened in return? The world responded with 10 times the amount of goodness. It was an outpouring of goodness because of that one small act. Yeah. And to me, this is proof that absolutely, how's this for a bookend, right? There's absolutely more good in the world than bad. Yes. And most people want to do good things with their life. 
And if you just give them a way to like do something good, to read something good, to feel something good, it it's like a fire and it just catches on, right? And and eventually um you sit back and you just watch all this goodness that oh, we didn't create any of this goodness. It was no, all Jake, Jake, right? Jake like made the decision. It. He, yeah. And it was like, like think about that decision, right? Yeah, one decision. Charles, it's like, it's, it's, it's one decision. And how, how quickly do you have to make a decision in a case like that? Half a second, yeah. right? It's, it's a split second. Clearly like, everybody else I on gonna... the subway made another decision. That's right. That's right. They they just sat there, right? And look, I don't blame them. Who knows? Who knows what maybe could happen? They were old. Maybe they like. Maybe they just didn't feel like they could confront a large man who was threatening. Um, but Jake happened to play rugby. Probably knew how to tackle somebody, take him down to the ground, and he's like, "Well, all right, I'm going to do this." Right? Nobody else is going to step up, and he did. So, in a split second, in a micro fraction of a second, how much goodness was created? That was enough goodness yeah. to change an entire family, a community, and 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 so many wow. more people. And and it's like you your your original question was what's the most memorable story and it's that because how many people in the world make that same decision to help somebody else every single day and we don't know about it and we don't know about it how much power is there mm. in the goodness that they're creating that we never know about and that's that's my mission now right is mm. that's the how revolution do we find those moments that's the revolution how do we find those moments and how do we create that revolution where it's like no it's you can create a revolution. I hate this because it sounds cliche, but you can create a revolution out of love and goodness and support, you know, and you can do it in a way that just increases and increases and, and multiplies the good in the world. And, and that's our revolution. I love it. I didn't even have to ask the question. You put it, you put it, put it right there. <laughs> <laughs> Mohammed, that is a, God, that, that, that story is riveting. And you think about that, the simple act, the simple act of an individual and how that simple act, his, his revolution in that moment sparked greater revolutions. You think about, I, I wonder, I, I began to question, like, what's his relationship like with his mother now? They've been estranged, but now maybe this is the galvanizing point or maybe that you know, turns his, you know, turns his financial future around. And you think about the, the rugby team. You think about her. I even think about that. Her, how has her life changed? You know, you, you think about the crisis that she was in, and for him to somewhat mitigate mitigate that crisis for her. Imagine, you know, put yourself in that young woman's shoes. Imagine being assaulted on a subway and looking around at an entire room of people and knowing they were just going to stare back with blank eyes and not help you. Yeah. Imagine if that had happened, right? Like that's enough to destroy you. It's, that's enough. That's enough to, to kill you. Like you, I'm not why, human. You, I'm, I'm being dehumanized I'm, by all I'm, of these people. Right. Not only I'm the attacker, but the, everyone else on that train. It's like, it's like you would tell yourself that like, why would you want to exist in a world like that? Yeah. That's full of people who won't help you that don't value you. But instead of that feeling, now what ended up happening was she said, you know what? Yeah, okay, there were a bunch of people that didn't do anything, but somebody stood up to help me. Mm-hmm. That means I, I had self, I had some worth, right, to somebody else that I'm worth something. I'm, I was worth saving. I was worth helping. Maybe there's some guilt, which is like, oh, I wish I, that didn't have to happen to me. And I think the, the young woman started studying martial arts and self-defense right. afterwards, which is fantastic, right? But like, you know that, hey, you know what? When I needed help, there was somebody there, there was who some, helped me. Somebody and, saw and, my humanity. And that's, 
And that changes your life too. That is powerful. That is powerful. That is powerful. Yeah. And I think you would agree with me. Like stuff like this happens every single day. Every single day. And I often think about like, why is it at the end of the news program that we have to hear potentially about someone good or we can go an entire news program and not hear anything good. You know, like I love Lester Holt, but some, you know, all the time it's at the end. And we know at the outset, most folks don't list, don't watch the entire news. They, they see what's at, you know, the first 15 minutes and then they're gone. Revolutionaries, look, like I said, you know, I get the opportunity to interview some of the most impactful people in the world. He's Canadian, right? We won't hold that against him, <laughs> as he <you> said. <laughs> you know, I have to say this. The power of relationships is important. You cannot fulfill your revolution alone. And we always talk about who are your midwives and how can you, you know, find those people to help you fulfill your revolution. Well, Muhammad is a midwife, right? I, I met him five years ago in an office in, in New Orleans, you know, as we were working to do some really, really great work for some really, really great people. And then to think about where we are now and think about that, you know, I think about the CEOs of CNN and MSNBC and Fox. And now I'm, I'm looking at the CEO of the person who's going to bring the good news to us to make us understand that there's a power of Jake in the world, in all of us, the power for us to step in when other folks will not. Because as we said at the outset of this, there's more good in this world than there is bad. And that's the, I think that's the revolution in our thought. We have to see the good in the world. There's so much good because there was so much good in that office that day between Muhammad and I. There was so much good in that apartment in New York as we celebrated the championship of the Raptors. There's so much good in the breakfast in New York or the dinners in New Orleans or the, the text or the phone calls. Brother, how are you? There's so much good. I promise you, if you continue to see the good in the world, it's seeing the good in the folks, you know, and stop infecting yourselves and, and, and making sure that you're putting great things into your mind and surrounding yourselves with great people. I think the revolution can happen much faster than we think. And I want to thank you, my brother. I want to tell you that I love you. And I'm so grateful for our friendship. I'm so grateful for what you're doing in the world. And I'm so grateful that somehow we got put together <laughs> in this journey. Somehow, Revolution, um, I want you to make sure, go download the Goodable app and make sure you turn on the notifications because you're going to get some good stuff. Muhammad, Muhammad leave, leave us with something. You've already given us so much, but leave us with something. Um, Charles, you, you said that this was my revolution. And I think it is. I think part of the incredible value and love and positivity that you put into the world is that you're exposing people to multiple revolutions. Everybody's living their own revolution. Yes. Everybody's doing their own thing, trying to chip away, change the way the world works, change the way we see the world, all those things. And we're doing it one way, but other people are doing it in their ways. And the beautiful, beautiful thing about what you do is that you're, you know, we open people's eyes to, to a certain perspective. 
I think what you're doing is you're covering that entire rainbow of perspectives, right? Which is like, well, start looking at the world this way. Start looking at the world like this. Look at it through a critical lens. Look at it through um, an economic lens, a racial lens, a political lens, like whatever it is. I think you're exposing to people uh, to a lot more than than you think you are. I hope so. And so you know hey we're doing our own revolution but like you're up at the front right you're on the front lines of doing all that stuff and um you have my deepest you know this you have my deepest love and, and admiration but also just um respect that you know i think what i think what you're doing is changing lives and and keep going brother like just just keep going man like keep doing what you're doing and i i don't like using this thing because it's i don't fully always understand it but like you do you right like, <laughs> that's just, all i can be just you do you right like just it's enough yeah. it's enough for the world to get better for you to just do you that's enough yeah yeah i appreciate it revolutionaries you know that at the end of the day we want to make sure that you're answering what we think here is the most thought-provoking question of your life what's a revolution and you know that I love you and that I want you to be successful. And I want you to do, as Muhammad said, do you. Find your way. Find your people. Find your community. Find your revolution and fulfill it. We'll see you soon. sweet i was in staten island a few months ago like on staten island a few months ago we're doing a story about um there's a restaurant there an italian restaurant um that started bringing in grandmothers from around the world to cook for people and so they yeah it was great so they'd fly in grandmothers from italy and they'd bring in grandmothers from like across america and they would just cook whatever they would cook for their families right so you had italian grandmothers like portuguese grandmothers like japanese like everybody would just rotate in so we were doing a story about them and we went to go talk to the Japanese grandmother and she lived like in Kyoto or something, spoke like broken English. And so we introduced ourselves and we're like, yeah, we're goodable. And like her eyes lit up and she goes, oh, goodable. I love you guys. And we're like, that's so nice of you. She goes, you're the ones with the smiley face, yeah. right? And, and we were like, yeah, that's so nice of you. She's like, oh, I follow you. Can I take your picture? And it was so rewarding because, you know, um, it's too bad this isn't the show, but like, you know, when I was at CNN, nobody ever came to you gushing and said like, <laughs> oh, I love you so much, right? It's like, it was the opposite. It was like, if anybody approached you, it's because they were angry at you and they wanted to like vent or say, why did you report this? Or why did Jake Tapper say this? And I'm like, I don't know. I Like, that's not my show, right? Like, I'm just doing my, my news thing. But with Goodable, it doesn't happen all the time. But like every once in a while, we just meet somebody and they'll tell us like how we've made a difference yeah. in their life and it's the best feeling it's the best feeling in the world i love it that and that's that, that's the revolution that's 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 what the revolution is yeah